Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. So today I'm really, really excited to have Justin Seitz on the show today. And first of all, welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you very much. A longtime fan, first time caller. Yay! Yes, we've been trying to get you on the show for a while, so we finally have done it. So You bet. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) Thank you for coming. For our listeners, Justin is an author of a number of books. He also has some e-books as well. But um, he has Gray Hat Python, Python Programming for Hackers and Reverse Engineers. And then his more recent book is Black Hat Python, Python Programming for Hackers and Pen Testers. And he is also the founder of Automated OSINT, a course designed to teach OSINT automation. And um, we will definitely put a link to that website and that course, because I'm sure Justin would love to teach you, a listener as well, these wonderful skills. So we're actually talking about OSINT today, or what, not using the acronym Open Source Intelligence for those that might not know what OSINT stands for. So to start off with the show, why don't you just define for us what OSINT is? Sure. So in a very general term, uh, open source intelligence is intelligence that's gained or data gained from publicly available sources. So that means that it doesn't require you performing any covert activities in order to gather it, such as uh, a human source or uh, other means. So we think of open source intelligence today as obviously the web. Uh, We think of the dark web in terms of Tor, but also, of course, the big... uh, thing uh, more recently is, of course, looking at social media as a means to begin to gather an intelligence. I mean, how does it compare to other sources of intelligence? You mentioned human intelligence, signals intelligence. What are the major differences here? Of course, human, we can figure that out on our own. But what about signals intelligence? Right. So signals intelligence, I always think of it as Uh, looking at electronic communications primarily, uh, but also it's an activity done by nation states that are legislated to actually collect these signals. So we're thinking of, you know, radar systems, we're thinking about uh, underwater cables, that type of thing. But, you know, there's always these, these, uh, these blurring of the lines where I begin to look at things and say, um, you know, is it signals intelligence if someone's using a uh, software-defined radio at home to intercept uh, air traffic control messages? Or would that be considered open-source intelligence because the data is freely available? So there's areas that begin to kind of blend together. But traditionally, when someone says SIGINT, you're thinking more along the lines of what, say, the NSA would be responsible for doing primarily. I mean, the other thing that someone might ask that is not very versed in intelligence matters So we have human intelligence as well, which one might be able to throw in there that, okay, open source intelligence is information that humans are producing. So what is the difference there? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. I mean, the the flip side of that, of course, too, is if I communicate with you over Twitter uh, and ask you for information and you provide it uh, publicly, is that open source intelligence or is it human intelligence? So again, I always seem to want to defer back to are traditional definitions. And you think of human intelligence as, you know, a clandestine human source. So I work to recruit you, I meet you, um, I utilize you to gain information about an adversary or to help uh, further policy for my own country. Um, so again, I look at it uh, from those terms full well realizing that humans are, of course, behind creating and curating all of the open source intelligence that we get. 
So again, you see these blurring of the lines, of course, um, and I myself do not have an intelligence background, so uh, I tend to look at it more in shades of gray as opposed to black and white, but I think a lot of people definitely uh, see a clear distinction between the two. So as we mentioned at the starting of the show, you are teaching people automating OSINT, and you've had experience in your work career. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you've seen OSINT in the past and how you're seeing new trends developing today in this intelligence gathering means. Sure, sure. So previously, a lot of what I used OSINT for was, of course, uh, performing social engineering. So uh, in a former life, and still today, I'm an offensive security practitioner. So I'm looking at uh, how to break into things, how to social engineer people out of information like their passwords, their social security numbers, that type of thing. Uh, so I would look at open source intelligence from that perspective as me trying to understand uh, what makes someone tick or their relationships with other people, maybe what associations they belong to. And of course, I spent a lot of time you know, roaming around LinkedIn, looking at Facebook, looking at forums, that type of thing. Uh, and then eventually I started to develop kind of my own set of tools to uh, automate this process. So not only could I look at what uh, someone was doing today or what associations they belong to, but I could also begin to look at patterns. So were they starting to talk more about a particular topic uh, that could actually help me uh, figure out whether it was time to actually approach, um, you know, in, in terms of social engineering? Um, am, am I seeing patterns in, in how they operate at work or groups that they belong to, that type of thing? Um, over the past few years, I took more of an interest in how can we use much of the same techniques and begin to monitor things like Twitter, for example, and uh, begin to look at interesting groups on Twitter, uh, paying particular attention to ISIS, of course. So uh, I started to really spend more time in how do we approach this problem um, from the perspective of an individual, so maybe a data journalist or maybe a single investigator at a law enforcement agency, as opposed to um, you know, kind of clicking around manually through websites and taking notes or someone who has budget for a, you know, multi-million dollar system that they can deploy that kind of vacuums up the whole internet. So this is kind of where my training and some of my, you know, blogging and stuff has, has focused on is how do we take one person and give them as many capabilities as we can to draw this open source information out without requiring a bunch of money but still making it faster and more efficient for them to analyze this information than, you know, using traditional manual techniques. So that's kind of how I ended up where I am today. And you mentioned just now that law enforcement or intelligence agencies, intelligence corporations, that they can use these technologies to further hone in on the individuals or the groups that they're looking for. If we're talking about a terrorist group, say, where do you see OSINT going in, say, the law enforcement or other security-related fields um, and areas? I mean, how far can it go? Is there a limit, do you think? Or is this basically limitless with our amazing Internet age and social media, which seems to everyone wants to put everything on the Internet about themselves lately? Right. So I think that there's a lot of potential, and I still think that, uh, there's a lot of agencies and, and a lot of, not only in law enforcement and intelligence, but just a lot of uh, public safety type agencies, uh, much like we have up here in Canada, that have not quite fully exploited uh, what OSINT can do with them. And full of keeping in mind that 
um, not all police forces and agencies are federal or very large, right? So there's a lot of these smaller organizations, smaller municipal law enforcement agencies um, that are very tight on resources, um, but they still haven't quite, you know, leveraged how can we do this at a small scale that's going to work. And so the real power for law enforcement and intelligence agencies, in my opinion, is that they're able to take classified information that they've gained through protected techniques and protected sources and begin to uh, gather intelligence that kind of ties into their private data sets. And that is really where we're going to start seeing some uh, significant leaps in terms of how to kind of fuse this stuff together. Now, again, the real challenge is not how do we do this better for someone who has multi-billion dollar budgets because there are tools and there's uh, you know consultants and all kinds of stuff that these organizations can pull in. But how do we get these smaller organizations you know, that might not be looking at, um, say, counterterrorism issues across an entire country, but they're looking at localized drug crime or they're looking at human trafficking problems um, which are equally important to citizens. I mean, counterterrorism takes a lot of the news, and of course, this is a primary interest of mine and a primary interest of yours. But we also have to look at some of the driving factors behind these things, which you know include a, a multitude of problems, a petty crime all the way to uh, more significant, more serious crimes. And there is you know ways that we can help people get there. And I think that's going to be you know, the real turning point for us uh, is when we start to see these smaller organizations beginning to leverage uh, technologies, you know, much like what, I'm, what I talk about, um, what I blog about, and, and they start to use this on a day-to-day basis to further assist them in investigations. I think that's when we start to see um, a real kind of tipping point. And I don't think we're quite yet there yet, but I think we're getting there. And so... On your blog, and for our listeners, we'll definitely post the link to Justin's blog. On your blog, you have a lot of case examples. And maybe you could provide us with a case example that for you really highlights how OSINT can be used, whether it's for law enforcement, for a researcher, anybody that's trying to find a good amount of data and information on something. Sure, yeah. So the one that really comes to mind is uh, looking at kind of uh, if you're familiar with Bellingcat and Elliot Higgins and some of the other folks that uh, work on that site, I mean, they are amazing at geolocating photographs. So most famously, uh, last year, they geolocated the James Foley um, beheading video. And of course, more recently, they've done work with uh, Russians' incursion into the Ukraine. Um, but in, in speaking with Elliot, the big thing to me was that um, they're still having to do a lot of manual work when it comes to pulling you know, potentially hundreds or thousands of photographs from a particular uh, geographic region. And so, you know, again, this is a perfect example of where um, you don't need a million dollars and you don't need a computer science degree that with a little bit of code and a little bit of ingenuity, you can very easily take what could have been, you know, many hours of kind of click and, you know, point click and point click over and over and over again into something that's very condensed, targeted, and something that you can get through very quickly. So this is where um, I'm also starting to see data journalists are beginning to pick up on this, that, you know, I used to spend hours analyzing photographs, and now I'm actually spending, you know, minutes because I'm not having to just kind of wander around sites like Panoramio or Wikimapia. 
and and hope that I find the particular photograph I'm interested in. So this is a, a good example again of where we're going to start to see more and more journalists beginning to employ these techniques because um, people like Elliot Higgins and, and again the fo- lots of people at Bellingcat that contribute are really you know a lot of people are opening their eyes to this and saying there's all of this amazing data out there. We just have to figure out how to wrap our heads around how we're going to use it and how we can make sense out of it. Um, but also what journalists are, are particularly good at is uh, they tend to stress a lot on verification. And so that's not something I teach you, right? So I always tell people that I'm a technologist. I'm going to teach you how to get the data, how to get it faster, potentially how to curate and analyze some of it. Um, but what I can help you do is I can't help you do the verification piece. And that's where good old-fashioned investigative journalism or you know, a traditional um, police officer is going to be very good because that's what they're trained at. So again, this is not a silver bullet, but you can see in the case of Bellingcat, I know that those simple little blog posts and scripts um, that they learned were, were very useful. Looking at social media platforms again, where do you find the best uses of OSINT? What, what sites really stand out for you for gathering information? Oh, by far, Twitter is, uh, is the best. I mean, they have uh, developed an API that makes it very easy for you to pull lots of information. Um, every tweet is marked with uh, tons of information that I can analyze. Um, you know, I can look at, did you change from an Android phone to an iPhone? Do you have location services enabled? When did you create these tweets? I can even tell if you've deleted tweets. I can tell if you've scrubbed uh, your tweets of geographic information, for example. Uh, and again, uh, J.M. Berger of IntelWire.com is, is really the heavyweight in this field. Is He's done all kinds of amazing work where... You know, he's peeled apart these these extremist networks on Twitter. And really what you're seeing, uh, and, and JM, of course, is very good at, at doing this analysis work, but what he's really highlighting to you is how data-rich uh, Twitter is as a platform. But they also, again, they design their API in a way that you can really access it. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. It's very straightforward, and they make it easy for you. And this is definitely the, you know, the inverse of that is Facebook, which is very closed, uh, you have to use non-traditional techniques to access the information. Their API is relatively useless. Um, for example, if I wanted to watch what you are saying every day on Facebook, um, that requires far more work than it would uh, for me to follow you on Twitter, for example. So, you know, I really hope that more platforms begin to adopt the Twitter model because it makes our job easier. Um, and, and it definitely opens it up a bit more. But, you know, Facebook is kind of an extreme example. Instagram, Flickr, um, you know, Google has many APIs, and they all kind of behave much like Twitter's. But, again, it is really the king when it comes to social media platforms. Something that comes to mind is you're getting all this information, you're creating an idea of, say, an individual or a group, whoever it is that you're profiling, how does one verify OSINT? So in the sense that how does an analyst judge the reliability of the information that they're getting? And also to take that further, how can that individual that's being analyzed create fake info to throw you off, um, throw off the analysts from their case, they're tracking them, however, whatever is going on with sure. this uh 
Sure. Yeah. So, so to address your your first question, I mean, um, you know, there's an actual term in the NATO Open Source Intelligence Handbook that's called OSINT V, which means that you validated or verified the OSINT. And how they kind of feel that uh, you've validated something like that is that you've used, you know, potentially numerous other sources in order to actually uh, validate that an open source piece of information is true. So, for example, if you had a uh, a newspaper article that said a certain person shot another person, before they would consider that to be validated, of course, you would have to have other records. So, hospital records indicating that person was shot, uh, potentially video of the incident, witnesses, you know, numerous things that would actually help corroborate what that story actually is. So, of course, for us... Uh, when we're looking at maybe what's going on in Syria or Iraq, um, it's very difficult for us because we are we have to, to a degree, question every single tweet that we see and potentially even question overall trends that we're looking at. And the only real way for us, if we're sitting here in North America, to validate these things is we have to rely on journalists or other people on the ground to actually say, yeah, that did actually happen at that time. Um, Aside from that, you have to kind of rely on human sources as well. So I know that some journalists are able to freely talk with uh, jihadis and potentially citizens in places like Syria and Iraq. Um, but again, how, how can you then, you know, even if you have that single source of information plus, you know, some tweets, how do you actually validate that, you know, those two things can be corroborated together? So it begins to be a bit of a rabbit hole, and, and I'm not sure where exactly um, it ends. Uh, you know, overall, I think how a lot of people tend to approach that problem is they say, well, you know, I noticed this pattern emerge and then, you know, something did happen that actually fit that pattern. And so they tend to kind of operate in reverse where they look backwards and say, yeah, I actually, the data does show that that did happen. Um, but they're not so good at saying, uh, validating kind of in real time as things are going on, especially in places where it's not easy to get human sources uh, or there's not a lot of journalists around or the information is protected. So the short answer is, is it's very difficult to, um, which is why it's uh, extremely crucial that if anyone is going to use this information for actual investigations or if you're a journalist and you're doing a story, of course, um, you're going to approach it much the same way that you have to be very diligent in actually validating this stuff. Um, it's, it's absolutely crucial. Now, to answer you, the second part of the question, which is how can you effectively spread disinformation, I mean, the answer is very easily. Um, it, it's very easy for someone to begin to spread disinformation. Um, we've seen it in the case of uh, very recently the New York Times did a piece called The Agency, and of course, uh, you know, what we saw there was that um, Adrian Chen, the reporter, was able to kind of sort out that a Russian agency had begun, to, had begun effectively a propaganda campaign and was saying that uh, there was an explosion in Louisiana. And this happened on September 11th, uh, 2014. And so this propaganda campaign involved multiple people, uh, involved trending hashtags and lots of moving pieces and of course, this is the exact problem, and we've seen groups like ISIS as well uh, pull the very same techniques, is that it's very hard for you to validate this information. Now, of course, there were people in uh, Louisiana who were saying, no, there isn't an explosion, but that one voice in Louisiana is, is not necessarily going to be able to drown out potentially 100 or 200 uh, people in Russia who are continually tweeting these things and continuing to trend these topics. So, you know, as... 
as we go on, we're going to see more and more of this, that it, it's traditional kind of disinformation campaigns, but also you're going to see that um, people are going to be able to, to start to think about from a criminal perspective, you know, how can I cater my social media such that I can, for example, provide an alibi for a crime I'm going to commit or that I have committed. And so I think we're going to have to continue to, to look at these things and, and begin to identify how can we do a better job of weeding that stuff out, get more signal from the noise, but also, again, focusing on the analysis and the verification pieces that will help to actually answer who's behind these things and the truth of what they're saying. So that's also something that comes to my mind. Say you have someone that has criminal intent that might perpetrate a crime, might have already done so. There are so many aspects and books and, and websites out there that if you really, really put your mind to it, you can figure out how to create completely false information. So as you, an individual who analyzes potentially people that have done criminal acts or as you said um islamic state isis isl whatever you want to call them at this day daesh um how do you counter that because your art is potentially being used against you yeah yeah so you know as a as someone who's worked in you know information security for a number of years and of course written books on you know here's how to write hacking tools. I've heard this argument a lot that, you know, uh, the more we teach, uh, the more uh, the enemy is going to be able to learn. And that's very true, but I also look at it as the more we teach, the more prepared we're going to be. Because to think that, um, you know, ISIS or, you know, other maybe nation states aren't already using disinformation campaigns or that they haven't figured out how to uh, fake geolocation tags or that they haven't thought about these things already, I think that we are vastly underestimating our enemy. So I think at the end of the day, the more well-prepared we are, the more educated we are, the better we are at this stuff, um, is gonna, it's only going to help us to get better at making sure that we're one step ahead of where they're at. And if we don't take those initial steps of kind of doing the training and, and learning how this stuff works then we're going to fall behind. And ultimately, it also means that the more we understand how data is being used, potentially against our adversaries and against us, that also means we can help protect ourselves better, that we can do a better job of using these platforms to engage in investigations or to track criminals and and not kind of show our hands at the same time. I think that's really important. And do you think OSINT analysts are ready for this, so ready for their adversaries to potentially become as smart as they are with OSINT. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I would anticipate that, you know, every time we are looking at networks of individuals on Twitter, for example, that are interesting to us, there is some network that we fall into that someone else thinks uh, we belong to and, and that we're interesting. So I think that, you know, they get that. I think that um, there's not many people out there who don't understand who are in this kind of line of work that, you know, everything we use against someone else is going to be used back on us. And I think that, yeah, OSINT analysts and, and law enforcement folks um, are prepared. But again, it, it is very much an arms race. These things change rapidly. Uh, the platforms change. People move on and off of platforms. 
sometimes uh, on a whim, we see things like Twitter banning a number of accounts. Um, things like this means that what we really need to do is be extremely agile. We need to make sure that we have the capabilities to um, do this analysis, you know, kind of at full running speed, and that we're able to uh, adapt and adjust so that we can continue to pull information from sources that might be in flux uh, and continue to pull information that might be transient. I mean, everybody always says, oh, you know, the Internet never forgets. Um, anyone who says that has uh, quite clearly not ever done uh, an OSINT investigation of any kind because uh, I know numerous cases where a piece of information that didn't look important yesterday is very important today and it's gone uh, and, and never to be found again. So I think that that's where, again, we just need to make sure that we're, we're staying on top of that. How do you as an analyst deal with the sheer volume of information that you're getting from this open source data that's available? I mean, as you said, there's so much out there. How do you put it all together to make sense? Sure, yeah. So for an analyst, I think the big thing is, um, you know, as a single person, which there are lots of researchers and investigators that are just a, a one-person, maybe two-person team, I think the important thing is, that um, finding good data sources and keeping the data small. Big data, you know, and I'm using air quotes right now, is something that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, and I see a lot of people starting, you know, that's their starting point. And I think that that's just uh, the wrong kind of approach. I think those big tools that have the ability to do the big data kind of analytics uh, are great. But first, you have to kind of really get to know your data. you got to understand that. You know, I want to understand how my target operates on a single website um, so that I really understand that source of information. And then I'm going to look at other places that they operate. And don't you know, start by vacuuming up the whole Internet. Start by looking at targeted good information and begin to slowly expand outwards. And at some point, your data set will grow to the point that you are going to have to offload it to a much larger platform uh, to perform kind of big, this big data analytics on it. But for me, and again, if, if you look at where is the where is some of the foremost research coming out on uh, on tw on Twitter analysis for for extremist groups? It's one guy, right? It's Jam, you know, that one guy. It's not an entire agency. It's not this massive team. It's one person who picked a data source and knows that data source very well and does not overwhelm themselves with uh, with massive amounts of volume because they fully understand. Uh, how to you know derive value out of the small amount of data that they look at. So that's really something, that's a template for people to operate off of. Um, I can't speak for large teams, uh, you know, maybe teams that are working in intelligence agencies or law enforcement, um, but I think that uh, even in those agencies, if people start to look at these as small data problems and begin to look at the big data problems way down the line once they've got all the capabilities in place, then I think that they're going to see much more value coming out of OSINT for sure. And getting more technical here, how much does metadata play into analyzing OSINT in the sense that if you send a postcard, there's going to be a postcode on it. And just like sending a postcard, you're going to have internal codes attached to something that you're sending out in the ether, so to speak. So how much sure. does metadata play into this? So again, I guess metadata changes from platform to platform, but we could take a look at Twitter and say that there very well could be the case that uh, you, me, and Cena send direct messages to one another, but an outside observer would not be able to determine 
that. They would not be able to say, well, we know that they communicate privately without a warrant or perhaps uh, intercepting our communications in some other fashion. Um, but what we can begin to do is, of course, look at relationships, which is a form of metadata that we can begin to, for example, analyze two clusters of accounts, uh, maybe some interesting uh, people that follow one another. And there's, you know, interesting links between these two individuals. Um, you can begin to ascertain, you know, what does this actually mean? What does this individual uh, talk about? Why are they, you know, why are they actually this connecting node in this large graph? And so I think that metadata plays a significant role um, simply because uh, the, the body of tweets, for example, is not always that important. Uh, secondarily, of course, I'm an only an English speaker and I can only read English. So sometimes to me, I'm, I'm relatively blind uh, Google Translate is not so great in some cases. So I, my ability to analyze information, really, I have to step back and look at relationships more than I can look at, for example, the contents of what people are saying, because that tells me more uh, due to my own limitations. So I think it's really important. Um, and I think, again, that uh, it's one of those things where, you know, it's another kind of uh, tool in your tool belt that you can, you can look at the very same data in very different ways. So you have two books on Python, and once again, for our listeners that maybe don't have code, do know how to do code, or are not very technically apt, Python is not a snake. We are It's a computer code. <laughs> so I would like to talk to you about your use of Python in OSINT, and maybe you can look at your blog, so your automating OSINT blog. For instance, you recently had a post on analyzing Bin Laden's bookshelf. Of course, you had this amazing information that was released, oh, what was it, maybe a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, where we got to see what Bin Laden was reading, and it was very mind-boggling, some of the books he had. It was not what I expected. Um, but <laughs> sure. How do you use Python to do this automating and finding out some of the things that he actually really liked to read? Um Maybe describe Python first for our listeners, just to give them like the Python 101. <laughs> sure. So the reason why I use Python, I guess, which is the the important part, is is very easy to write. So I'm not actually a particularly good coder. Uh, I, I'm not someone who uh, you know was ever extremely proficient at coding until I found Python. And I actually worked with some professional Python developers. I will never be as good as them. Uh, but the the wonderful thing is, is that Python is very much uh, as close a programming language you can get to writing English. So it's easy to understand. There's no like weird kind of nuances to it like some other programming languages. And so a few years ago, we saw, in my case, uh, a lot of the security community began to adopt Python as kind of the the de facto language that we're going to use to write tools and, and to kind of work in our day-to-day -day job. So this is why I picked Python as uh, the natural choice for me to start to teach people how to automate uh, some of these OSINT tasks. And in the case of Bin Laden's bookshelf, um, what I did was there's over 100 documents that he had written himself and the ODNI had, of course, released them. And they actually translated them as well, which is very useful for folks like us. Um, but, of course, the, the question is, um, I, I don't necessarily have time to take a look at every one of those documents. And maybe I'm only interested in the documents where Bin Laden referenced, uh, you know, Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. And so the whole idea is that 
um, you know, the traditional way would be, okay, I'm going to click on every one of these documents. You know, I'm going to hit Control F on my keyboard so I can find the word Syria, and then I'm going to try to figure out if you know uh, if I like that document or not. And you know, we don't know uh, ahead of time which documents we're going to be looking through. We basically have to go through all 100 of them. And so this is really where you know Python has you know a million libraries that you can just download and install. Uh, for example, one that will extract text from PDFs. So you know that's a good start. We pull out all the all the texts. Uh, it takes us five minutes to write that code to download all of those PDFs, pull out the text, uh, and then we can leverage APIs that other companies expose. So in that case, I use the Alchemy API. Uh, Alchemy is a company owned by IBM, and they uh, they have this API that allows you to basically feed text into it, and it'll tell you a bunch of interesting pieces of information. So in this case, uh, you know, Alchemy was able to tell me which documents found you know the entities of. Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. And so you could begin to very quickly figure out which document uh, he spoke about certain topics. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Charles Cameron, uh, people might know him as Hipbone Gamer, uh, sent me a message saying, yeah, you know, that's great, but, you know, what's your analysis of this? You know, um, and again, I'm always hesitant to talk about analysis because I'm primarily a technologist. Um, you know, and I basically said, well, if you look at just the entities he talks about, um, you know, he talks more about the United States and America than religious uh, topics uh, or religious uh, entities, sorry. And so privately, Charles sent me an email and said, you know, actually, I kind of disagree with that assessment uh, because, you know, in this document, he refers to this religious thing here and this document there. And quite clearly, Charles had actually downloaded and read every single document, right? So he, he had actually analyzed and taken years of research in this field and applied it. Uh, so coming up, I have a new post that's basically going to uh, uh, show you how you can, again, how can we marry that? I mean, how can we take that challenge from Charles and say, well, can we actually deduce that he did, in fact, talk more about religion than anything else uh, based on uh, only using a computer to analyze it? So, again, uh, this is kind of the interesting thing, and I think this is a really fun thing, is, is where I see people who uh, they totally they get the value of this stuff, they understand that, you know, um, it can speed up their life, it can make things faster, but they're also still challenging with the fact that good old human analysis, uh, is, you're never going to be able to beat it. And so that's something I rail on all the time that, you know, really what we want to do is um, if we only have a finite amount of time to perform, say, uh, you know, an investigation, that really what we want to do is we want to make it so that most of that time is taken up with analysis and the actual data gathering part, the kind of the automated part of it, that is compressed down into a very short amount of time. And that's where we can write code to do that so that the, the real powerful part is the human end of it who's going to use intuition and hunches uh, and their experiences to be able to start to derive meaning from that, that data. And maybe as an example, how roughly, how much time would it take to write code for doing something like analyzing bin Laden's bookshelf and, as you said, trying to find references to Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan? Yeah, so in my case, uh, you know, I've been, been coding for a while, so I'm fairly quick at it. Um, if you were just someone who was reading my blog, it still should only take, you know, 15 minutes, maybe 20, 30 minutes, depending on how fast you read, so, so quite quick um, as compared to how long it would take for you to kind of click and download and, you know, 
do the control F trick on your keyboard, uh, looking for those words. So, I mean, that's the whole thing is that we, we want to be able to do that at rapid speed. But the other great thing is that once you've written that code once, um, you know, let's say six months down the line, uh, there's a big document dump uh, again by the ODNI, or maybe we uh, have changed issues. We're not worried about the Bin Laden stuff anymore, but uh, you know, uh, there's been a whole bunch of documents um, that have come out through a hack or other things. We can take that very same code that we took 15 or 20 minutes to write, and now we can just literally point it in a different direction. Uh, makes you know a minute or two of small tweaks to point it at the new website it needs to go download stuff from. And we can reuse the same technique. So we invest that 15 or 20 minutes uh, up front, but then we actually yield dividends from it continually over time as we continue to just reuse the same code over and over. Uh, and that's where you really start to see gains. That's really fascinating, actually. I didn't know that you could do that, so I learned something new. Hey, that's great. Also, I know just talking from, with you personally, um, you were at a conference a number of months ago and you presented your work on automated methods for identifying ISIS supporters on Twitter. And it was something I found really fascinating. And I was wondering if you could maybe discuss this a bit and the work involved in this process and, and what you found by doing this project. Sure, yeah. So um, originally what I kind of sat down to think about was um, you know, how would one go about actually beginning to create um, a data set of, of ISIS supporters? Um, so how would you actually do this and how would you do this at large scale? So again, I thought about, well, potentially I could look for, you know, try to find, you know, one of these guys and then, you know, create a list and follow them, uh, you know, and then maybe look at their friends and followers. Um, and I didn't particularly like it just simply because it seemed like there was going to be uh, a lot of work involved for me to kind of get to that point uh, where I would maybe have a thousand or two thousand uh, ISIS um, followers or supporters. Um, so I started to think about, you know, how could I solve this problem? Uh, the first step was, of course, well, maybe I could use hashtags uh, or text-based uh, information. Again, the, a big challenge with that is, of course, that hashtags um, can be used in many different ways, people might be, you know, saying something derogatory about uh, ISIS and still using the hashtag and not knowing it. Um, or, of course, uh, the hashtags and the text itself could be written in Arabic or Russian, uh, and I might not be able to figure out what they're actually saying. So I kind of abandoned the idea that I'd be able to use text uh, in a meaningful way. And I, I started to think about the fact that their imagery always contains kind of the same pieces of information. So uh, lots of uh, ISIS supporters at the time, of course, were, were flying the black flag. Uh, when you saw their propaganda, their videos and still frames from their videos or photographs, they also had the black flag. So I started thinking about, well, maybe I can use images. So if I can write a Twitter crawler that basically walks through uh, any, any account, literally I could point it at your account on Twitter and let it walk through Twitter and, and look at the profile picture, download it, and then use some uh, computer vision techniques to actually uh, determine whether it detects the black flag contained in your profile photo or your background photo, then it automatically tags you and says, okay, we want to keep that account because that looks like it's something that uh, is of interest to us. Uh, so this actually worked pretty well. The problem was initially that the false positive rate was very high. So um, I'm not a computer vision expert. It's like a whole subfield of computer science. Uh, so what I had to do is actually create a little game. 
So when I would run this crawler, it would go out and find potentially, let's say, you know, 2,000 uh, potential accounts. And then what would happen is as I was looking through the pictures that it actually matched against, what I was seeing is, you know, a picture of a cat not related to ISIS at all, you know, a picture of a dog, a picture of a car. Um, so again, this is the false positive rate coming to kind of bite me. So I built a little game that effectively allowed me to play Duck, Duck, Goose, where, uh, you know, if I matched a photo that did have uh, the black flag in it, I'd hit spacebar and it would file it. Uh, and if it didn't match, I'd hit enter and it would shove it off into a different directory, for example. And this actually worked really well. I was able to sort through, uh, you know, piles of images very quickly. So the solution was, uh, in its latest uh, iteration, was, was getting better and better. But, of course, there was still that human verification piece that, that had to be done in order to kind of filter out the noise. And then once I got to that point, I realized in very short order, um, what would have taken me days or weeks, um, now I had code that I could just run and it would effectively generate potentially you know, a few thousand um, accounts that, had the, uh, that were flying the black flag uh, in, their, in their profile or their, or their background image. So it, it worked pretty well. And then, of course, more of the talk at the conference also dove into how I began to validate whether this technique was working. So was I actually seeing people who, you know, of course, because that black flag is effectively hijacked, right? It's, it's something that they've taken for themselves. Um, that doesn't automatically make you an extremist. Of course, we have to start looking at other pieces of information. You know, if someone's holding an RPG, um, you know, probably someone who supports ISIS or is, or is at least a photo of someone on the ground. Um, you know, so those types of things. And I had to kind of walk through the fact that there's still other pieces of information you have to look at. Um, but it, it, it was kind of a unique thing because it enabled me to go from kind of no data on this group of people to very quickly having a lot of data uh, and lots of uh, enabling me to ask lots of questions of this data. Well, this is so fascinating. There's so much that you have taught me and I'm sure our listeners as well. And there's so much you can do with open source intelligence. And I'm going to once again say that we will post your website and your blog um, links for our listeners if they want to learn more. And I know you've been a longtime listener. So you know that at the end of wrapping up the shows, we like to give our guests a moment to maybe touch on something that we've not talked about or have their final say. So I'd like to hand the floor over to you, Justin. Well, that's pretty easy. I think, uh, first off, everybody should be listening to this podcast uh, more frequently than they are and go back and listen to all the old episodes. So well, I'm gonna, thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll kiss up to you guys first. Uh, and of course, uh, people are more than welcome to send me questions uh, and, and you know, hit me on Twitter if there's anything that I can do to help anyone. Um, this is not just about selling my blog or training or anything like that. I genuinely enjoy engaging with people and I enjoy teaching people. Uh, so anything I can do, please feel free to uh, to approach me. Well, thank you so so much for finally coming on the show. We finally figured out how to get you on. <laughs> thank you guys. It's uh, it's been a blast, uh, and of course, I will be uh, continuing to listen. Thank you, and it's been a pleasure.